I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... How Disney World actually has its own private government. What does this mean? Well, back in the mid-1960s, when Walt Disney was conceptualizing the idea of Disney World, his Florida sequel to the California-based Disneyland, it was originally intended to be an actual, corporately-owned utopian city called Epcot, with residents, schools, jobs, a police force, and even its own internal governance. Disney's death in 1966 majorly disrupted the plan, but Disney World was still legally recognized by the Florida legislature as a city with its own privatized government. This would only be the beginning of Disney's thirst for creating and controlling their own utopian city. But would it all end in murder? Act 1. Why does Goofy talk and wear clothes, but Pluto is a regular dog? The mediums of animation and comics have been largely culturally trivialized in American society as inconsequential children's entertainment. Any grown adult who still loves watching cartoons or reading comics is very familiar with the side eye and condescending tone you'll get from coworkers, acquaintances, and potential romantic partners when discussing these interests. But in reality, these two mediums, oddly enough, have been some of the largest levers in shaping everything about pop culture in the United States. There was a time when the entertainment business revolved around cartoons. They moved technology forward, drove cultural conversations, were subversive and pushed boundaries, and served as the most contemporary mirror reflected back on society. And then one day, people forgot that, and now you have people freaking out because somebody said the word damn in The Incredibles 2. There are a lot of reasons for this, but that's a discussion for another episode. However, it stands to reason that, because of this, a small-town boy from Missouri who went on to become the founder of one of the most legendary animation studios in the world and had a hand in creating some of the most iconic animated characters in history would also be the one who almost solely revolutionized the way American society functioned as a whole, though he was doomed to die before ultimately achieving that goal. Walter, or Walt Disney, was born on December 5th, 1901, at 1249 Trip Avenue in Chicago's Hermosa neighborhood. Growing up, he hated the noise, the grime, and the hard edge of the big city. So he was delighted when his family moved to beautiful small-town Marceline, Missouri, when he was four years old. There, he developed an interest in drawing, and eventually began to fixate on a dream of becoming an animator. Yeah, but did he, though? He did. I mean, he... he, he <laughs> He personally animated uh, uh, the early stuff that he did. He just sucked. He was just not good at it. Yeah, but also of iWorks animated all of the stuff that they made money off of and became known for. No, and- but I'm, I mean, before he ever met of iWorks, he drew like political cartoons for his like school newspaper and he hand animated some of his early like things that he put into his portfolio. He just wasn't good. He was just never good at it. There's no reason not to think this isn't true, although there is a possibility that it is just part of the kayfabe narrative, but he had aspirations of building this empire and turning animation into like a legitimate thing. Yeah. And I think also that he's somewhat like Bob Kane, the guy who's often credited with creating Batman and that Walt Disney is is somebody who was in love with the idea of being an artist. Yeah. And not an artist. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's a little harsh because I think that he genuinely did want to make stuff. He just wasn't good at it. I sort of had the this a similar viewpoint of it as you do, but reading into some of the biographical stuff, which is not for this episode, it's for a bigger episode about animation. But early on, he personally directed a bunch of the early Disney stuff, but he hated it. And he basically he basically retired from directing animation just out of like despair at his own lack of talent. And so he just like decided to just shut that part of himself down and become like a, you know, a uh, the 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 visionary or whatever. We're not going to get into this in the, the episode entirely, but just briefly for anybody who doesn't know, Ub Iwerks and Walt Disney co-founded an animation company in Kansas uh, or Missouri or wherever the fuck it was. It was in Kansas City. Yeah, that was they 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 moved to he moved to Kansas City and that's where they started it. Yeah, they met like at like a greeting card company or something, right? And. Um, so he and Ub Iwerks are these two illustrators. They're like, we hate working for the man. Let's go out on our own. And they made the, they made a company together where they were going to, um, make these short animated commercials and films and stuff. And, uh, Ub Iwerks was kind of the Jack Kirby of the two of them. He's the one who did everything and, uh, was the illustrator, the actual illustrator with a capital I. He animated all of the, uh, shorts and also like invented cameras specifically made to animate these shorts the company went under walt disney moved out to california fairly quickly sold uh is it oswald the lucky rabbit that he sold he or the alice shorts he sold one of the short series of shorts and was like "Ub, come out to california and work for me so Ub moves out they start doing these oswald the lucky rabbit um cartoons they take off and i believe it was for universal or paramount Oh, Columbia, Columbia, Columbia. Thank you. And Columbia just takes Oswald and is like, fuck you guys. No, leave. Yeah, he found out that they were basically trying to replace them. So he like went to New York and tried to convince them to give them more money. And then they just basically like secretly hired away all of their animators behind his back and they were left with like nothing. So from there, Ub starts coming up with all these new characters because Walt has this idea of like, we have to make a our character that we can own and we're not going to give up the rights to him. We're going to do it ourselves. And Ub comes up with all these characters, all these characters, all these characters, and eventually hits on um, Steamboat Willie and and Mickey, you know, the, the the evolution between those two characters. And Ub animates all of the, oh, he animates Steamboat Willie, he animates all of the original Mickey Mouse cartoons, and guess who gets to stand in front of it and Stan Lee style take credit for everything? Walt Disney. And ultimately they have this huge falling out of Iwerks Leaves. And he starts his own studio, um, which unfortunately crashes and burns. And then he's in 1940 hired back by Walt Disney. And it's like the most sad, depressing shit ever. And he, he says he'll only he goes like, I'll only come back and work at Disney if I don't have to be an animator. I just want to work on like inventing cameras and doing shit. And he invented the multiplanar camera, which is how they do live action animation hybrid um, projects later, like. Uh, Mary Poppins and all kinds of shit, but it's super depressing, and Ub Iwerks got fucked over in his legacy. Most relevant to the story, in the 1940s, after the Walt Disney Company had achieved massive acclaim for their work in animation and for producing one of the very first animated feature films, Snow White, in 1937, Disney had seemingly accomplished the pinnacle of the dream he'd had since he was a young kid in Missouri. He'd revolutionized animation and entertainment and produced some of the most successful films in the world. What was he supposed to do now? Disney wasn't the type of person to rest on his laurels, and he was hungry for achievement and innovation. He'd get bored just being the animated mouse guy for the rest of his life. So he had an idea. 
He wanted to create an amusement park based on his characters and films. And while a large part of the idea was rooted in the opportunity to make money from the park, there was something bigger in it for Walt. He wanted to create a magical land where people would come to escape from the real world and, at least for a time, enter a fantastical realm that had been carefully constructed from his imagination. He wanted to create a place that bent the laws of reality and seamlessly helped people suspend their disbelief and feel as if they were no longer on Earth, but in some kind of otherworldly paradise. Most importantly, he wanted to create a perfect place in which he had tight control over every aspect of what people experienced. As we'll come to learn, Walt Disney had what was ultimately an unhealthy obsession with control. And, uh, you know, just, just really getting into the early parts of this story, you know, everybody has their, their white whale aspect of their, of their life and their career, uh, you know, that we, that we talk about on the show. And, um, you know, a lot of the creators we talk about tend to have this, you know, obsession with accomplishing a vision and building some kind of world or whatever it is, or making lots of money or whatever, whatever it happens to be. And to a certain degree, that is seems to be what Disney's thing was, is, you know, having this grand vision of or this projection of having a grand vision. But I think really, ultimately, the the big thing that I saw just pervasively throughout all of the research that I'd done and all of the bi biographical stuff that I read and all the stories is that he's just he was just like obsessed with controlling every aspect of his life and other people's lives. He wanted to have complete control over everything. I don't know what it is because, you know, I read a lot of biographical stuff, but I didn't really read anything that seemed to kind of like give a sense of why or what the what the origins of that was like there was no story of like when he was a kid his mom left him and he you know or whatever there was but for whatever reason he just seemed like he was obsessed with controlling everything that'll just continue to be a theme throughout this whole story basically what if what if the the reason that he wants to control everything is because he was never satisfied with his little like pencil mustache like he like woke up every day and like shaved like yeah, just like two or three little hairs of hair off of the sides yeah. of it. Yeah, and he's just like, ah, oh, it's still not right. Fuck. He would do it until it got down to nothing, and he would start over, and it was just like it was this weird obsessive thing that he did every day. Fuck. And then and then one day he he accidentally shaved it all off, and Roy Disney had to come into the lot early and be like, guys, just pretend like Walt has a mustache. If you acknowledge that he doesn't have a mustache, it'll mean the end of everything. And Walt like walks onto the the lot that morning, and the the like paper boy's like, well, howdy there, Mister Walt Disney guy. Love your mustache today, sir. And Walt's like, what? I thought I shaved it off. Maybe I finally reached the apex. I have shaved the perfect mustache shape. This place would be Disneyland. The concept for Disneyland began when Walt Disney was visiting Griffith Park in Los Angeles with his daughters Diane and Sharon. While watching them ride the merry-go-round, he came up with the idea of a place where adults and their children could go and have fun together instead of adults just watching their kids have fun. The idea would lie dormant for years, but eventually it would cross his mind again when he noticed that people would constantly write in letters to him from around the country requesting to come and tour the Disney Studios. He realized that the tour would ultimately be disappointing to these fans wanting to experience the magical world behind their favorite cartoons, and wanted to create a place that would live up to their expectations. The earliest recorded reference to this idea was in an internal memo that was sent by Disney in 1948, in which the park was referred to as Mickey Mouse Park. It started out as just a small park that would be near the studio in Burbank with a lake, a boat ride, and a few other small activities, but it quickly ballooned in size over the coming months until it eventually became a grand vision for a massive theme park. 
Walter hired Harrison Buzz Price, the original Papa Pricey, who worked at the Stanford Research Institute, to conduct a feasibility study to determine the best location to build a park like this. And after his extensive research, he determined that rather than building in Los Angeles, a spot in Anaheim, California, in the neighboring Orange County, would be the best place to develop. Disney bought up several orange groves in the area and began plans for building Disneyland. And uh, I, got, I gotta say, I, I, I don't know what the likelihood of this is, but I feel like there's some chance that uh, old Harrison Buzz Price is a is a distant relative because honestly, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff I like to do, but the idea of going around like collecting data and like crunching numbers to create a feasibility study of whether something would be financially viable from a data driven perspective sounds like exactly something I'd want to do. So there might be there might be some Price bloodline going there. Maybe it's just the Papa DNA. Maybe maybe you're looking at it the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, it's not even the Price. It's, yeah, it's the pop. It's the it's the Papa side of my family. However, Disney was having trouble coming up with the funds to build the park, so he entered into a partnership with the then fledgling TV network ABC. He would produce a show for the network called Disneyland, later titled The Wonderful World of Disney, and in exchange, they would fund the development and building of the Disneyland theme park. For its first five years of operation, Disneyland was owned by Disneyland Inc., which was jointly owned by Walt Disney Productions. Walt Disney, Western Publishing, and ABC. Construction began on July 16th of 1954 and cost $17 million to complete, equivalent to $131 million in today money. The park was open one year and one day later. U.S. Route 101, or as we call it in California, The Five, was under construction at the same time just north of the site. In preparation for the traffic, Disneyland was expected to bring two more lanes were added to the freeway before the park was finished. By 1960, Walt Disney Productions bought all of the other shares and Disneyland was fully hit. As with everything else, he got the complete control he wanted, but it ultimately wouldn't be enough. Walt had always been obsessed with control of every aspect of his business and the work they created. And back in 1939, he thought of a way that could extend to the very lives of his artists. Disney's animation studio was making a big move from its comparatively tiny Hyperion studio in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles, now a bustling hipster community of kombucha shops and transcendental meditation studios, to a massive campus in Burbank after the success of Snow White. With the money and the ability to start from scratch, Walt and his team of Imagineers meticulously planned out the campus to be ideal in every way for the animators to work and learn. And initially, he'd also planned to build an apartment complex within the campus where the animators would also live. Walt thought that he could get the best work out of his team by creating a hermetically sealed community where they'd work, live, and socialize. However, there had been growing tensions within the company for years as animators had become angry with Disney's business practices, anti-labor union stance, and pay, and the proposal of forcing them to also live at Disney was the final straw. In 1941, there was a massive animator strike at Disney which resulted in anti-union Walt firing many of the animators. Thankfully though, the strike ultimately led to Walt being forced to recognize the Screen Cartoonist Guild. But the apartment complex idea was scrapped. It wouldn't be the end of Walt's dream of creating his own community though. Flashing forward back to the 1950s, while Disneyland was in full swing, Walt was simultaneously working on another grand idea with a different approach to the world-building concept of his theme park. With Disneyland, he wanted to create a magical world where people could come to escape reality for just a little while, but he was also working on an idea for a world you would never leave. In 1957, Walt began plans for something called Seven Art City, a planned community to be built just north of Los Angeles that would include a shopping district, an art school, and residential homes for artists and art students to live. He was once again looking to create a hermetically sealed community of self-contained creativity that would ultimately serve as an incubator for Disney talent. This is just so, like, it's such an interesting microcosm into his brain because it's, you can, it's interesting because Okay, so this guy, frustrated artist, comes up through 
um, the fledgling animation industry with his best friend. They make some early successes. They part ways as enemies. He starts doing his own thing, finds success, kind of subsumes his best friend back into the company. That kind of emotional Pyrrhic victory sets this template up in his brain of like, I, I know more about artistic endeavors and, and the, the process of being an artist than artists do. And I can, Machiavellian style game the system and use environments to ping these artists off of each other, milk the fruits of their labor and make money off of that, and then flip that into more artists in those ecosystems producing more work that I can flip over and over again in this kind of never-ending ping-pong game of um, environmental control plus subservient artist equals fame glory and money for me which is really really dark yeah totally and and it's and it's really i find it really fascinating to see the thought process on display for him doing that where it seems like with everything that he did there was like this node-based logistically reverse engineering and working backwards to the very beginning of a problem in order to like solve it through some like long, complicated sequence of events that he felt that he could start from that, you know, zero point that he could like holistically control it from that point outward. And, you know, this isn't in this, but, you know, another thing that he had done was whenever Disney was taking off and becoming successful, they were the first animation studio that would like train and um, send animators to school because once again, Walt Disney didn't want experienced animators like you would imagine a company would want like, oh, like we're going to hire these guys because they're really good. He wanted like people who didn't know what they were doing so that he could like train them from scratch in his way. And so starting from that point of like, I want to get these people inexperienced and then train them exactly in my way. He started he works backwards from there. So he's like, okay, I'm going to send them to art school. But he got tired of driving them to the art school. So then he started having an employee host the art classes in their house. And they had an art teacher who had come to this private residence and teach these art classes. But then Disney found out that they were having like nude models posing for drawings during the art class. And he was like, if anybody ever finds out that we're funding like nude models, like in a somebody's house or whatever, like it'll be a huge controversy. So instead, let's bring the let's bring the art classes into the studio and we'll start we'll start having these art classes in on this big stage that we have in our studio. And that was what birthed this whole idea of like Disney having this internal um, Imagineer system where they would train people and they would go through education programs and stuff like that. It all came from this weird chain of command of like starting from like, I want all of my artists to be trained in exactly my worldview of how animation should be. So I'm going to go back to like the very beginning of that and like work and like reverse engineer it back to the point one and then reinvent the wheel from there. And it leads to that. And it's that's it's really fascinating that you can like see that that weird obsession just kind of writ in in every move that he made. But that's another that what you're talking about is another thing of that where it's it's like I want all of these I want to I want to cultivate this community or this culture of artists and I want them to be like holistically taught in my ways and I want them to be like insular and only interacting with themselves and eating and breathing and sleeping Disney 
So like, where's like, where's like the zero point of that? And he works his way back and he's like, oh, I'll just create like a little city for them to live in that he like go. It's just, it's so crazy that it's so, it's so fascinating that he like, he goes all the way back to like the, the, the most logical origin point of any of these ideas that he has. And it's also, it's interesting because it's, it's, <clears throat> it's a it's the kind of like all of these ideas are kind of like the like 2 a.m conversations that artists have of like blue sky like wouldn't it be cool if we had like this fucking crazy compound where we could just like have art classes and like make animated movies man that'd be so fucking awesome man oh well gotta go clock in at my job drawing war propaganda see you later tony but with him because of various environmental and um, shrewd business moves and a lack of emotion in certain <laughs> uh, key instances and a hatred for uh, unions, uh, he just was able to finagle so much of this capital and come up, come up with these brilliant ideas of like, and also who's to know, who's to say how much of that was him and how much of it was Roy or other people in that orbit, you know, like the idea of having ABC co- finance the production of the studio lot in order to have the prestige brand because one of the things that's kind of not in the script is that at that point in time in the in the you know when when disneyland first being built tv was like garbage it, it was culturally looked down on as as a lesser medium where film was the pinnacle of culture yeah and all, and all the all these cartoons that we know of is like having watched when we were kids because they were syndicated onto like cartoon network they were not TV cartoons. They were they were played at movie theaters and the the cartoons, it, the few cartoons that did come on TV were fucking terrible. Yeah. And the I mean, it's it's the equivalent of kind of like when you hear that somebody does a podcast, you know, like when you hear that somebody has a YouTube show, you're like, oh, yeah, anybody can do that. OK, that's like culturally on the on the entertainment landscape, how TV was viewed in the 50s. You know, like a podcast was probably radio and, you know, TV was YouTube where it was kind of like, yeah, but that, that's not really art. You're you're slumming it in TV. Right. This was easily the most ambitious idea he'd ever had, even bigger than Disneyland or the idea of having animators live at the Disney studios. He'd essentially wanted to create his own mini city focused around art and creativity. He tasked Harrison OG Papa Pricey Price with doing another feasibility study on Seven Art City. And what Price ultimately determined was that the idea was not feasible. Over the next few years, Seven Art City would be slowly pared down to becoming a plan for a massive new art college that would, in a smaller capacity, still be the Disney artist incubator that Walt wanted. Under Walt and the Disney Company's planning and financing, two ailing art schools, the Chouinard Art Institute and the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, were merged together into a massive and state-of-the-art campus in Santa Clarita, California, called the California Institute of Arts, or CalArts. What the fuck? Yeah. I did not know that CalArts was a uh, Disney project. Disney founded it, baby. It was originally supposed to be a fucking city and then it just became a college. Wow, I had no idea. That's so, that's, wow, I had no, in no idea. That's so interesting. I mean, it explains why CalArts is like the animation college that people, you know, go there and then end up in the industry, but it's still fascinating. I, yeah, I had no idea. CalArts opened in 1961 and has served as the launching pad for many of the creators you've known and loved throughout the years, such as... 
Tim Burton, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, Andrew Stanton, Pete Doctor, and basically all the rest of the founders of Pixar, Carrie Mae Weems, Don Cheadle, Allison Brie, Sophia Coppola, Paul Rubens, aka Pee Wee Herman, Mark Bradford, Pendleton Ward, creator of Adventure Time, Craig McCracken, creator of the Powerpuff Girls, Alex Hirsch, creator of Gravity Falls, Gindy Tartakovsky, creator of Dexter's Lab and Samurai Jack, Steven Hillenberg, creator of SpongeBob, J.G. Quintel, creator of Regular Show, Cecily Strong from SNL, and many more. With the founding of CalArts, Walt established a legacy, but it still wasn't what he wanted. He didn't want to die only being known as a storyteller. He wanted to be known for changing the world. Disneyland was a smash success upon opening in 1955, but it almost immediately left Walt dissatisfied. He wished he had more money to buy up a bigger plot of land and felt like there wasn't room to expand his ideas. And more importantly, he hated the fact that cheap businesses, motels, and tourist traps almost immediately sprung up around the park to capitalize off of its tourism, some of them even appearing directly outside of the front gates. He felt like these businesses were unsightly and attracted a shady element and that it completely destroyed the immersion into a fantastical world that he wanted for his guests. To him, stepping into Disneyland was supposed to make the real world and all of people's problems completely disappear. But this was impossible to do with the bright, blinking neon lights that dotted the visible sky as guests entered and left the park. Even with the ability to build his own park to his exact specifications from the ground up, he still didn't have the full control that he desperately craved. So only a few short years after Disneyland opened, Walt was already thinking of his next idea, something much bigger. Something that would combine the ideas of Disneyland, his planned community, Seven Art City, and his dream of cementing his legacy as an architect of society. He was planning to create his own world, an experimental city of the future that would be 25 years ahead of its time and serve as the key influence in pushing society, art, culture, technology, and the human condition forward, called Epcot. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group. That's Deep Cuts Podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. Act two, are you a farmer? Because I've got a couple of acres for you. Disneyland proved to be a huge hit on its opening in 1955, and still continues to be one of the largest tourist attractions in the world to this day, pandemic notwithstanding. But it was built on only 160 acres of land with no possibility of expansion unless Disney wanted to pay absurdly inflated prices to attempt to buy out surrounding landowners. So by the late 50s, Walt was already planning on his new project. In 1959, Disney started talks with a different, larger television studio, NBC, about the possibility of taking over the distribution of their Disneyland TV show they were doing for ABC. As part of the discussions, NBC and their parent company, RCA, were very interested in funding the development of an East Coast Disneyland. They wanted Walt to build a sequel to the California Disneyland near New York City. The thing, though, is that Walt Disney hated doing sequels. Famously, after the massive success of the animated short that put Disney on the map, an adaptation of The Three Little Pigs in 1933, they produced three additional sequels featuring the pigs to capitalize off of its momentum. However, the shorts didn't prove as financially lucrative as the original film, and Walt wasn't happy with the quality of them, and so he swore off doing sequels forever, commenting in the media at the time, you can't top pigs with pigs. Dubious but still willing to explore the possibility, Walt once again hired OG Papa Pricey. Man, that guy, that guy is just everywhere. He's just, he's just feezing up and feezing down, feezing left. He's in right. He's OG Papa Price. He's just feasibility and all over this bitch. If he conducted a feasibility study on his own career, it would be through the fucking roof. It would be very feasible. My employment, 
feasible. To conduct a feasibility study on opening a theme park near New York City, Price determined that the weather in the area would force the park to only be open seasonally, and the deal fell through. But the floodgates have been open on the idea of building another park, and Disney began independently scouting locations where they could buy up land. The company began talks with a billionaire real estate investor named John D. MacArthur, who was looking for developers on a 6,000-acre plot of land he owned in Palm Beach, Florida. The prospect was very enticing to Walt. Compared to the measly 160 acres of land Disneyland was built on, 6,000 acres seemed like it had virtually endless possibilities and the weather in the Palm Beach area was comparable to the ideal conditions of Southern California. This was when the idea became much bigger to Walt. Whatever might have happened in New York with the NBC deal, even if Disney had expanded their initial concept for Disneyland into something new and more innovative, it still would have ultimately ended up being another theme park with some improvements and expansions. But the 6,000 acres of freedom gave birth to something completely different in Walt's mind. He was going to build a fucking city. A real, actual, functioning city with homes and residents and businesses and schools and churches and the whole nine yards. But it wasn't just going to be a city that happened to be built and owned by the Disney Corporation. It was going to be the greatest fucking city in existence. And it would solve all of society's most important problems and usher in a new utopian era. You see... Walt Disney, as a notorious control freak, had a lot of issues and grievances with the way that modern American cities were evolving, and he thought if he just had control, he could fix all their problems. He was concerned with the growing crime rates and poverty in large cities, as well as the white flight that was occurring where many white Americans were fleeing the inner city and moving to the outer suburbs to escape racial integration and the growing civil rights movements, which was diverting a lot of the city's financial resources towards those affluent suburbs and away from the increasingly poor and destroyed inner cities. It's unclear whether Walt wanted to fix this because he thought racial integration was a good thing and he wanted to create a place where people of all races could live in harmony or if he wanted to just get white people back into the cities. But given the time period and some of the questionable content in early Disney cartoons, one might make assumptions. And, you know, the fact that he gave notorious Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl a literal tour of the Disney studios. But honestly, the biggest concern Walt actually had about cities, significantly larger than issues with poverty or crime or racial integration, was with cars, traffic, and the increasingly large role that automobiles were playing in society. The automobile, which had previously been a luxury item only afforded to the wealthy, but had increasingly become a default part of the American experience over the last decade or so, was choking out the landscape of cities and eating up the space that was previously allocated to pedestrians. Walt felt like cities were not built to accommodate the infrastructure for cars, and it was ruining all aspects of modern society. In addition to solving the crime and poverty problems, he also wanted to build a city from the ground up with cars in mind. He started quietly sketching out plans with a small team for a quote-unquote city of the future called the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, or EPCOT. The concept of the city would be that it would be a company town, a self-contained, privately owned city with its own infrastructure, its own internal governance, its own insular community, and a system of businesses, jobs, schools, etc. to sustain itself. The initial plan for Epcot called for 12,000 acres to be used to build a city of 65,000 residents with 23 schools, 21 churches, 15 playgrounds, 2 golf courses, 2 parks, and 3 waterfront hotels. The amount of parks to golf courses is... It really tells you where his, uh, where his head's at as an old white guy who's really rich. We gotta have it... We gotta have at least parity between... Golfs and parks. We can't have more golfs than parks. Do you know how many golfs it takes to be happy as a middle-aged man? It takes a lot of golfs. And I promise that if I'm elected corporate weird 
totalitarian owner of a city that I built myself and control every aspect of. And if you want to live here, you have to just do everything I say and or else I'll just kick you out. I promise that there will be one golf for every park. One blood demands one golf. Company towns weren't actually a new thing at the time, and the concept had been attempted many times in the past. In 1884, George Pullman created a town called Pullman. It was a 4,000-acre town in the south side of Chicago with over 1,000 homes and 12,000 residents. It was initially a success, but after an economic downturn in 1894, Pullman suffered a worker strike. Then there was a full-blown riot that killed 30 people. Pullman was later annexed back into Chicago. Honestly, I, I would live in a town that was owned by Bill Pullman. We will not go quietly into the night. We will fight for this. Our weird, pseudo-fascistic, tiny, privatized town! In 1928, Henry Ford created a rubber factory in Company Town in the Amazon jungle called Fordlandia, where he tried to impose his personal ideals on indigenous workers, banning tobacco, alcohol, and women to increase productivity. This caused riots and strikes. The factory never produced any rubber, and the town was also scrapped. Keep the fact that these company towns always seem to collapse in on their own weight and fail in mind. Walt and his team began flying through the country, scouting locations to build Epcot. Initially, they considered developing land in Monterey, California, California, St. Louis, Missouri, Niagara Falls, New York, and Washington, D.C., before finally coming full circle and returning to where they had initially started, Florida. But not the palm tree-studded coastal town of Palm Beach. During a flyover in Florida in 1964, Disney's plane was over a massive, undeveloped patch of swampland in central Florida, an area of the state that was largely empty at the time. Walt noticed that there was a massive area of land right next to where a new highway was being built that would eventually connect Orlando to Tampa. Walt took one look at the swampy patch of land and knew it was the site of his greatest work. He immediately hired OG Papa Pricey to conduct a feasibility study on the <laughs> land. <laughs> <laughs> If OG Papa Pricey, man, that guy, he's the hes the Nick Fury of the uh, Disney construction universe. He's just always there. It's like, he's got one of those little, like, tripods with the weird little, like, eyeglass thing on the top that, like, is supposed to tell you, like, distance in place. Oh, man, he's there. He's spray painting the ground with those weird spray paint things you always see on the black top. And the, the, the numbers and symbols they're making don't make any sense ever. He's, you know, he's just there. He's out there. He's the, when they open the park, he's the guy that's painting the parking spaces with big white roller. Roy Disney is just like, Walt, you need to chill it with the feasibility studies. You are obsessed. You're ordering too many feasibility studies. You do it for everything. You like, oh, feasibility study this, feasibility study that. Oh, should I take the five to work or should I take side street? Should I go to Mulholland? Feasibility study. You just chill it on the feasibility studies. It's too much. And then Papa Pricey's just like, I would suggest uh, I do a feasibility study on whether or not everything that Roy just said is total bullshit. <laughs> Fuck you, Price. Fuck you, man. You're just a leech. You came into this company and you just are running around saying if things are feasible or not. You don't know anything about business. I'm Roy Disney. I know about business. Oh, you do, Roy. I mean, I'm sorry, Walt. You know about business. You're the business guy. I'm just your brother who's going to inherit the kingdom and then turn this into a dynastic thing. It's going to be really weird and shady because I'm not really all that gifted at business. And I'm going to run the company into the ground almost in the 1970s when I'm going to produce a bunch of weird experimental live action films and live action Disney films uh, aimed at kids starring Kurt Russell. Um, but, you know, uh, Black Hole is going to be really cool and people are going to like it like 30 years later um, as a weird kind of cultural anomaly. So it'll never really get past the 
cult uh, appeal that it had. Uh, but, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Fuck you, Papa Pricey. Fuck you, Roy. I'm going to do a feasibility study on your ass. What does that even mean? I don't know. Fist fight. So Disney set about the task of acquiring the land, but they knew that if the various landowners got wind of the fact that it was the Disney company that was trying to buy their land, real estate speculation would balloon out of control and the prices would skyrocket. However, Disney's lawyer at the time, General William J. Donovan, had served in military intelligence during World War II, where he had learned a technique for acquiring land secretly. In 1965, Disney created a series of shell companies that all approached the various landowners in the area to inquire about purchasing without revealing that it was Disney who was doing the purchasing. Because of this, Disney was able to buy up this swampland in the middle of the undeveloped central Florida for an absolute steal, even by 1960s standards. Whereas Disneyland was built on 160 acres of land and Walt had been frothing at the mouth over the prospect of the sixth thousand acres in Palm Beach, and then the proposed plan for Epcot ended up requiring 12,000 acres, the abundance and low price of the Central Florida land allowed Disney to ultimately buy 27,000 acres, twice the size of Manhattan and roughly equal in size to San Francisco. He was able to purchase all 27,000 acres for just $5 million. Some of the fake company names used to purchase the land were I4 Corp, Bay Lake Properties Inc., Latin America Development and Management Corporation, Reedy Creek Ranch Inc., Tomahawk Properties Inc., Compass East Corporation, and Recreators Inc., these names were later added to a window of a house in the Main Street USA area of the Magic Kingdom Park in Disney World. You know, for funsies. And honestly, Walt might have continued buying up land long after the 27,000 acres, but as the land was purchased, it started to catch the attention of the public, and there was wild speculation in front-page articles about what was being planned for this huge patch of land in the middle of Florida. People speculated that it had been bought by Henry Ford, the Rockefellers, NASA, and even some correctly guessed that it was Disney. In 1965, during an interview with the Orlando Sentinel, Disney was asked directly about the land purchases. He denied being behind the purchases, but the interviewer noticed a momentary look of shock when he was asked, and the Sentinel published a story saying that they were sure that the land was bought by Disney. The speculation caused the land prices in the area to start jacking up wildly, and Walt decided his hand had been forced and it was time to admit what he was doing. In response, Disney and the state of Florida decided to formally announce the project, called the Florida Project at the time, and held a press conference. Walt Disney, who will bring a new world of entertainment, pleasure, and economic development to the state of Florida. Walt Disney. Thank you, Governor. Well, Mr. Governor, uh, this has been a wonderful reception that uh, you've given us here. All the faces seem friendly, and uh, we feel very much at home. Of course, this is a big, exciting project for us, too, you know. I mean. Uh, in fact, it's the uh, biggest thing we've ever tackled. And I might, for the benefit of the press, explain that my brother and I have been together in our business for 42 years now. He watches out for the financial side of it and the corporate side. And uh, in this project, though, I'd just like to say that uh, I didn't have to work very hard with him on this project. He was with me from the start. Now, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. This is like a very awkward press conference. Mr. Roy Disney. By this time, the project had expanded even further beyond just the idea of building a futuristic city. Because of the amount of land that Disney was able to purchase, the Florida project had now become a plan to build Disney World, a massive resort that contained multiple different concepts within. 
In addition to Epcot, the city of the future, there would also be parks, wildlife reserves, an airport, and just straight up a second fucking Disneyland called the Magic Kingdom for good measure. And not only that, but also miles of a buffer zone. Beautiful nature areas you'd need to drive through before reaching the actual resort so that the immersion into the fantastical world of Disney could be absolute. The properties would be surrounded by parks and flanked by two lakes, so no businesses could spring up with an eye shot and fences shouldn't be required to keep unwanted people out. Now the area we propose to develop is between the Greedy Creek Swamp and the Bobby <laughs> Creek Swamp. There's, it's, so one thing uh, Disney is like standing in front of this cartoonishly large map. It's like a 30 foot tall map. He looks like a like a child, like Tom Thumb next to it. He's got this massive pointing rod that's like 15 feet tall. And also, like, just can you like? Obviously, like they ended up building the park and this is massively successful company or whatever. But like, he looks like a fucking crazy person. Like he's just in this room surrounded by these maps that he drew, just being like with a giant stick, just being like, and this is where the future city's gonna go. Like, he looks fucking insane. This is where we're going to have our baguette shop where people are going to be able to buy the long breads. That was like a weird combination of of dying long bread Woodrow Wilson, Paul Lind, and fucking Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> yes, that was very Catherine Hepburn. I didn't realize I could do a Catherine Hepburn until right now. I mean, Catherine Hepburn is just Woodrow Wilson and Paul Lind mixed together. <laughs> and so with the land acquired and the cat out of the bag, Walt and his team of Imagineers began expanding and cementing the plans for the construction of Disney World, and particularly Epcot. Building the new Magic Kingdom theme park as well as the other resort destinations would be simple and something they'd done before, so a majority of the time, planning and brainstorming went into building Walt's City of Tomorrow and solving the world's most pressing urban problems. Somebody who was instrumental in helping Walt design Epcot was Marvin Davis. He was hired to... Damn it! I was so looking forward to that being Papa Pricey. <laughs> I think that we rapped on Papa Pricey. I don't think he comes up again. Oh, man. But uh, Marvin, it, Marvin Davis is actually an anagram for Davy Bakey. Davis was the one who took all of Walt's ideas and put them on paper as designs, schematics, blueprints, and plans. In terms of influences, the design and concept was inspired by many of the futurist architects and city planners that Walt Disney admired and was personally fascinated by. He was heavily inspired by the works of Ebenezer Howard in his book Garden Cities of Tomorrow, architect Daniel Burnham, the various world's fairs he had attended and built attractions for over the last few decades, and the satellite towns in Stockholm, Sweden that were planned developments with high-density city centers surrounded by a low-density belt of homes and parks with a central rail line running through it. But most notably, he was heavily inspired by the works of Victor Gruen and his book The Heart of Our Cities. Just a few years prior to the planning of Disney World and Epcot, Gruen had invented the shopping mall, and at the time, there was only one in existence. Gruen, who was a socialist and originally intended for malls to be more of a hub of community where people could live, work, and socialize together, almost like some kind of architectural commune, eventually grew to hate the consumerist nightmare his invention was turned into. But in its early stages, he, and eventually Walt Disney, thought it was the future of societal progress. It might not be surprising to learn now, given how commonplace malls are, how similar the concept of malls and Disney as a brand are in the context of our modern consumerist culture, and the fact that Disneyland and Disney World both have actual malls in them. But at the time, it was extremely experimental and revolutionary for Walt to base his city concept on Gruen's work. And he was said to keep a copy of the Heart of Our Cities in his office bookshelf at all times during the years of planning for Epcot. But what exactly was Epcot supposed to actually be? The most exciting 
the far the most important part of our Florida project. In fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of the <laughs> He just pulled a ladder out of the way. He's just like an insane well, person, like in a in a fucking like room. It's like a it's like a Howard Hughes, like he's he's one step away from peeing in jars and walking around with Kleenex boxes on his feet. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. Walt and the Imagineers put together the plan for the city throughout 1965 and 66, and the city was designed with a radial plan that was three miles in diameter. The entire proposed plan was projected to cost $620 million in 1960s dollars, which would be about $5.1 billion today. The city would include retail stores, offices, luxury housing, and a huge hotel in the center of the city, surrounded by a green belt filled with parks, baseball fields, other recreation, and schools. Outside of that, there would be single-family homes and more parks. Between the housing, there would be a people mover system so that people could leave their cars at home and get around the city through public transport. Transportation would happen below the city instead of on ground level roads. There would be three layers, one for trucks to transport items to different buildings, one for private cars, and one for mass transit. There would be several industrial zones with offices and businesses, and you could take a monorail from a nearby area by your house or even the airport and be transported to your industrial zone. The entire transit layer was gonna be massive streets of shopping covered by a roof and lit by skylights. It was heavily inspired by the concept of shopping malls. The whole thing was also supposed to be covered by a 50-foot climate-controlled dome like the Stephen King book or the Simpsons movie or Earth, according to Mark Sargent. <laughs> Fuck you, Mark Sargent! Which I guess would have made Walt Disney the weird Goro monster of Epcot. <laughs> uh, shout out to our Flat Earth episode. If you haven't listened to it, please do. We have a surprise interviewee at the end of the episode and it's fucking hilarious. Oh, hey, there's a dude standing on the apartment building across from mine on the roof. He's walking around with a flashlight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wish. He just shined his flashlight in my window. Uh, maybe I'm getting raided. This will be fun. Yeah. I can't wait to watch the SWAT I just sent to your house happen. Oh, God. It was also supposed to have an industrial hub with large facilities that would be occupied by large corporations like GE where guests could actually visit and see new technologies being developed that would eventually be implemented into the park. Everybody who lived inside of the residential areas of Epcot would work jobs either created by Disney or one of the businesses that had a residency in Epcot's retail or industrial districts. However, only people who had jobs would be allowed to live in Epcot. Nobody would be allowed to be an unemployed or retired, aka no poor people and no old people. And like many company towns before it, the underlying implication of this planned community would be that Disney would be creating and enforcing middle-class, mainstream, quote-unquote, pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps values on its citizens. You were essentially trading in a lot of freedoms, agreeing to live by a tight code of ethics, and submitting it to a ton of strict rules, such as having to park your car in a special alleyway built behind the houses so that there wouldn't be any cars out on the streets, ruining the scenery in exchange for getting to live in this city of the future. So you're saying that it is, in a lot of ways, kind of this 
uh, structural white supremacy made real and then enforced. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of Disney as a whole, right? Or at, le- at least, spe- especially back then. Um, you know, but you know, if you go to, if you go to Disneyland and you see some of their older attractions that were from back then, you know, the frontier land and some of the, just the little, the little, um, the little kind of like older pavilions and, and displays that they have, um, Disney traded heavily. And I think a lot of, a lot of things back in the fifties and sixties traded heavily in this like nostalgia for, like a time that didn't exist where where they were trying to make America great again. Yeah, it was. Yeah, totally. It was just it was just like this, this weird, like non-existent reality where like things were simpler and there you could leave your door unlocked and in whatever. And like, like just trading off of this, like weird, like simulacrum nostalgia um, that's in reality just a sort of mainstream middle class white um, set of set of values um, that that is just you know homogenizing and gentrifying society and culture and and this was this was like the ultimate realization of that where Disney and Disneyland sort of traded in that nostalgia and then Epcot was going to be like the realization of bringing that back but with like future technology. But what perks actually came along with living in a city of the future? Other than having all of this shopping and jobs conveniently located, being able to frequently visit a massive theme park right next to you, and having a very convenient public transit system that could whisk you out of your backyard into anywhere within a three mile radius? Well, for one, you'd have access to the finest in privatized healthcare and a state-of-the-art hospital, a private fire department and police force, and top-of-the-line schools. And you'd also be living in a city where every aspect of technology, from the public transit to your television set, right down to the light bulbs in your sockets, would all be experimental prototype technology 25 years ahead of its time, being actively developed and tested by the large companies housed in Epcot. The city of tomorrow would serve as an incubator for futurist technologies, and the citizens would serve as the test subjects. And even better, your house would constantly be upgraded with all these new technologies on a monthly basis. Whenever a new, improved TV or hairdryer was developed, somebody from the city would bring it to your house, get rid of the old one, and install the new one. It would be a consumerist utopia. Imagine if every time a new iPhone came out, you just immediately got it for free. But as Walt Disney would find out, it wouldn't be so easy to just build your own city. There would be a ton of hoops to jump through in order to be able to do it with the tight control he had in mind. And though he wouldn't actually survive to see it come to fruition, the steps that Disney took to pave the way for Epcot to become a reality would ultimately lead to a situation where the Walt Disney Company would establish its own privately owned government, and Disney World would become more like the Vatican City than its sister park on the opposite end of the country. Uncle Walt's Last Ride. By 1966, Walt Disney had everything lined up to realize his greatest vision yet. He'd build an entire city from the ground up, revolutionize the way that civilization runs by setting an example that would always be 25 years ahead of its time, and cement his legacy as a titan of industry who left an everlasting impact on the world he left behind. There was just one problem. If he was going to build his own city, he didn't want to be weighed down by all the pesky government control. The land that Disney World would be built on actually spanned two counties in Central Florida, Orange and Osceola. Disney was worried about the difference between how the two counties would treat the property, how planning and zoning ordinances would apply to the property, 
Whether or not the waterways that crisscross the property would need to be publicly navigable, didn't want the city to be annexed by nearby Orlando, and didn't want to be taxed as a resort, but rather receive the much lower agricultural tax. This was the beginning of the idea of turning Disney World into its own municipality, so it could essentially avoid all of these issues. Can you imagine the... Like, that's... The idea of this is so bonkers to me, and kind of awesome on one level. Like, taking away the structural white supremacist and probably literal white supremacist leanings of Walt Disney, um, the idea of, like, making a haven of future artist community is so cool. Like, I daydream about that all the time. Like, I'm like, what if we just had a fucking crazy warehouse compound thing where we could have all these cartoonists making comics and, like, we could, like, have a publishing company. The publishing company could pay for the the compounds where everybody could live and it'd be cool and everybody could own their own shit and blah, 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 blah. But, like, these are more or less just daydreams that aren't really going to amount to anything because I don't have 45 quadrillion dollars to dump into, you know, the Florida panhandle. Specifically $5.1 billion. Yeah, I, I don't have $1.1 billion, let alone 5.1. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that is, it's just like, it's like an, an like a ridiculously rich guy, just like, like, I mean, I don't want to spoil this necessarily because there's kind of like the thematic reveal at, towards the end of the episode. So I don't want to get too much into it. But, you know, all this stuff we're talking about, it's literally just one dude's like weird. It's like it's like it's literally what you're saying. It's like if 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 you just like had all these weird kooky ideas and you're just like messing around and being like, it'd be cool if there was like a fucking art city, but then you just had enough money to actually just attempt to do it for real. And you just had an endless amount of money to just be like, I don't fucking know if this is a thing you can actually do, but like, here's a billion dollars. So just go figure it out. Just this weird idea that I just had when I was like watching my daughters on a merry-go-round, just go build it. Here's the money. I, I would be so excited. Like that's honestly, this is so dark to admit, but this is like exactly what I was daydreaming about while watching that documentary, Wild Wild Country, about the cult in Oregon that just like bought up a shitload of land and like made their own municipality. Like that, that's fully what I was like, oh, wow, this would be so cool if you could just do this, but with fucking cartoonists. And it would it would get messy and weird immediately, but it would be so cool to just like yeah. There's there's definitely going to be uh, for the rest of this episode a lot of uh, cautionary tale that is probably going to ward you off of that dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Epcot will be a planned environment, demonstrating to the world what American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design. Epcot begins with an idea new among cities built since the birth of the automobile. We call it the radio plan. Picture a wheel. Like the spokes of the wheel, the city fans out along a series of radials from a bustling hub at the center of Epcot. A network of transportation systems radiate from the central hub, carrying people to and from the heart of the city. These transportation systems circulate to and through four primary spheres of activity surrounding the central core. It's like it's like there's a never ending there's a never ending supply of walls that he walks to with a different, larger, more scaled up map. Like the only the only thing that's separating him from being just a fucking mad person is just like a ton of money and he's wearing a suit. Yeah, it's like a ton of money and just the general vibe. Like he doesn't come across like a crazy person because he's reading off of cue cards while they're filming him. So his like 
whatever mania exists within that, you know, drug-addled brain is just kind of subdued by the fact that he's reading. We know what our goals are. We know what we want to accomplish. We love these giant ladders and wall-sized murals of Epcot. I've uh, I've utilized my multi-million dollar company that creates animated cartoons to fund a very obvious, obsessive, compulsive madness that I have. I just want to control everyone and everything because I know the way it should be because, well, I'm right and everyone else with every other viewpoint is wrong. That really is. That's that's what it is. I mean, you, you have to really genuinely believe that in order to think that you can, let alone should, build your own private city. You say that now, but Blythe, California, 2059, I'm going to be there all hunchbacked with a tiny fucking mustache like Walt Disney being like, welcome to Cartoonistopia. I mean, my my town is 100% going to be called Papa Priceyville. <laughs> Disney would need to get the approval of the Florida legislator to create its own special district and essentially transform Disney World and its surrounding land into an actual self-contained city with its own internal government and infrastructure so that it wouldn't be beholden to either county. In late 1966, Walt Disney and his team hatched a plan to shoot a film that would exhaustively pitch the idea of Epcot. And the film would be shown to the Florida state legislator as well as a selection of large corporations in order to court them to take up residency in Epcot's industrial districts. And this is the film that we've sort of been watching this whole time. Walt had his longtime personal writer, Marty Sklar, write a 25-minute film, and they shot it on October 27th. In the film, Walt goes over his grand vision for what Epcot is, what it could be, the tourism it could bring to Florida, as well as the model of society and technology it could provide for the world. Much can be said about Walt Disney's actual contributions to the creative work he took credit for during his career, but it cannot be denied that he was a masterful raconteur and storyteller able to effortlessly weave a tale, wrapping his audience around his finger and bending their emotions to his every whim. And that's what he did during this 25-minute film where he completely and totally sells the concept of this hypothetical, still not totally planned out futuristic city with extremely dubious chances of actually being possible to create. And notably, in the film, Walt adopted his quote-unquote Uncle Walt kayfabe persona he had used in every film he'd ever appeared in. A warm, idealistic, grandfatherly-type version of himself with all of the hard edges of his actual personality sanded away to put his audience in a state of comfort and ease. It was a persona he had increasingly grown to hate over the years, not wanting to be remembered as a soft, kindly old idealist with his head in the clouds, but rather a stern visionary with his feet planted firmly on the ground. However, when push came to shove, he ultimately knew that this was the best way to win over the state of Florida, by flooding them with the old-timey nostalgia and saccharine sentimentality of Uncle Walt. It would ultimately be the final filmed appearance of both Uncle Walt as well as Walt Disney himself. Three weeks after making the Epcot film, Walt went into the hospital for a surgery on an old injury. During the initial checkup, they discovered a spot on his lung. He had lung cancer from years of heavy smoking. He received the surgery, left the hospital, and was in denial, claiming he was ready to get back to work. However, he fell ill and was readmitted to the hospital shortly afterward. He was still obsessing over Epcot from his hospital bed, drawing plans for it on the ceiling tiles of his hospital room. How the fuck did he do that? <laughs> he had one of those giant like pointer sticks with like a Sharpie duct tape to the end of it, just like drawing on the ceiling. Like what the fuck? I mean, honestly, considering these videos we're watching and what he's doing, that's not even out of the, I mean, he literally was holding this long, maybe he brought the stick. <laughs> he had the stick in the video. He's like dying of cancer and he's like, Papa Pricey. 
I need you to conduct a feasibility report on if you can go get my giant stick from the office so I can draw on the ceiling of this hospital. You've lost sight of what feasibility reports are. You're just like saying anything that's like a request or a question and you're just phrasing it as if it's a feasibility report. Like you just asked me to go get your stick. That's not a feasibility report. Never mind. Actually, yes. Feasibility report. I will do it. It'll be on your desk first thing in the morning. Uh, you know my usual rate. <laughs> I'll send my invoice to your to your uh, assistant. He took meetings from the room, bringing in various Disney employees and executives to continue the planning stage of Epcot, eventually relinquishing control of Disney Animation Studios and Disneyland to his son-in-law. Not because of his failing health, but because he needed to focus solely on Epcot and no longer had time for the other parts of his business. And, you know, I, I wrote that, but I kind of want to speculate out loud about the possibility that that's not why he did it that he really did do it because he was gonna die and he was like handing over the the studio to his son-in-law but that he was like in his own mind framing it like he was handing over the studio because he needed to focus on epcot because he just wouldn't he just that was his way of doing it without acknowledging out loud that he was gonna die because another thing is going back to that what we were talking about a while back the joke with the the mustache thing one of his weird things was it was completely off limits to ever talk about death to him like if there was a there was a somebody who mentioned death and he like exploded and started screaming at him and then he like stormed off and roy or one of the executives took the guy aside and he was like, oh, you can never mention dying to him. It's like, it's, we we're not allowed to talk about death on, in this company. And he, he had this weird thing where he just didn't want to talk about death at all. So I, I, I wonder if like, that was just, I wonder whether it was really this like obsessive thing where he really did think he was going to continue planning Epcot and he was in denial, or if that was just him kind of like unspokenly relinquishing control because he knew that his days were numbered. Yeah, it's fascinating too, especially with the, like urban legends around after he passed on having his head cryogenically frozen so that if technologies were to arrive in the future where they could revitalize people they would be able to bring him back to life in air quotes which is like yeah but it's just your head bro like that's are they gonna clone you a new body or some shit yeah i mean that's kind of the uh that's kind of like the weird unspoken thing of like all these like life extending technologies is like the cryogenic freezing thing like it wouldn't it wouldn't be you because you you're dead. They would just clone you. And even if it was exactly like you and even if it had even if it was like so advanced that it had the same memories as you, it's a different life form that just has your memories and DNA. But you're dead like you're you your consciousness is dead. Yeah, full on. He died on December 15th, 1966, five years before Disney World would open. However, despite the fact that Walt's brother and business partner at the Walt Disney Company, Roy Disney, fought against the idea of Epcot tooth and nail all along the way, constantly bringing up the issues and roadblocks with the idea and trying to keep the business focused on the profit centers like animation and Disneyland, and despite the fact that he never thought it was a good idea to begin with, perhaps out of reverence and respect for his brother, or perhaps because they had sunk so much money into it by that point that he felt like it would actually be a bad investment to not try and see it through, he decided to continue on with the plans to build his brother's City of Tomorrow. Roy Disney prepared the 25-minute Epcot film his brother had shot and had it screened for the Florida State Legislator. Even from beyond the grave, Walt was a persuasive storyteller and the state was won over. 
The Walt Disney Company successfully lobbied to be granted the Reedy Creek Drainage District, a municipality with self-governments over its own irrigation and sewage. Eventually, that was expanded into the Reedy Creek Improvement District, a municipal district spanning the 27,000 acres of land that basically had self-contained government control over all aspects of its infrastructure. Under this municipality, Disney had control over land reclamation, waste collection and disposal, water and flood control, issuance of bonds, pest control, fire protection, building regulations and land use. It was very easy to convince the Florida legislator to basically grant Disney everything they wanted because they were eager to have Disney in their state to drive tourism and expand their tourism beyond just the beaches. Florida was also excited about the idea of Disney innovating a new kind of city and wanted to be home to whatever quote-unquote city of the future concept they developed. Two cities were created within this district, Reedy Creek and Bay Lake. The cities had the authority to maintain healthcare facilities, police forces, sell alcohol, and establish and operate a municipal court. Not only did the state award these powers to Disney, but in 1968, Florida State actually challenged these powers that they themselves had given Disney in court. However, Disney won, which actually helped them. It had created an airtight guarantee that Disney's governmental power would hold strong for decades to come. The legislator granted them the power and the court confirmed it to be law, a nearly unbreakable legal bond. Um, and, I, and I think basically what happened there, reading between the lines, is you know we've watched chunks of this epcot film and in it walt disney is pitching the the idea for the city of the future he's like that's he's talking about this crazy ass pie in the sky thing we've been discussing this whole time that's what they showed them whenever they granted this municipality but he had already died and while they continued on trying to basically do what the plan was it was like it, it was like a much more scaled back version of it that was much more just a resort than a real city. It was like a resort that had like aspects of being a city. And certainly a few years later in 1968, uh, you know, three years after he died, they were, weren't really thinking about it like a city anymore. They were just thinking about it like a, a bigger Disneyland. So I think by that point, they were like, we got fucking bamboozled. Like, we just, like, granted these people the ability to have their own government for a theme park. So they tried to go back on it. And they were like, wait a minute. No, like, you're not building a city. You're just building a Disneyland. You don't need to have a government. And, you know, we want to be able to tax you and we want the counties to control you. But they lost and it actually ended up reinforcing Disney's governmental powers to the point where, you know, maybe if they hadn't done that, because, you know, law is such a subjective thing where, you know, there's not really there's there's really not any such thing as laws. There's just like court cases that have happened historically and whatever the judge rules in these court cases, you can kind of reference back on it and be like, well, this judge said this and this judge said this. So if you kind of triangulate those two things, that's what the law is. So the fact that the legislator granted them this power and then a judge like banged a gavel and said, that's law, it made it to where they basically, you know, were set for life to have this little Vatican city with the fucking mouse pope. <laughs> Nothing else. Just just that. <laughs> oh, welcome to my city of tomorrow. Ho oh, ho! You better not be old or poor! Ho oh, ho! There was a snag in the plan, though. As Disney's lawyers had been pointing out all along, if you maintained a city with residents that own land, they would have the ability to vote in elected officials to govern the land. But Walt's vision required the Disney company to have complete control over the city of tomorrow and not have to contend with the red tape of publicly elected politicians. That was the entire point of creating the city. Complete control, even from beyond the grave. So Disney decided on one major detail of Epcot that would completely circumvent this problem. 
They'd establish a government where only landowners were allowed to vote in local elections, and then they wouldn't allow any of the residents to own any land. Citizens of Epcot would only be able to rent homes, essentially making the Disney Company the sole landowner of Epcot and therefore able to handpick ornamental local governors that were essentially just Disney employees planted in those positions as a formality. Man, that is that is such a dark concept. Like that is I, I that is the Verhoeven's toupee has existed for longer than we would all like to admit. Yeah, and and not only that, but that's that is how it works to this day. Like that is just this isn't like some weird old thing that eventually, you know, got changed or is like some antiquated thing that's long like this is this is how Disney World functions. And so in this way, Disney had created a self-contained government where they wouldn't have to answer to literally anybody except at the federal level. They'd done it. They'd paved the way for Walt's vision of a Disney-controlled city of tomorrow. Except, well, here's the thing. Epcot would have never worked in a million fucking years. And once they actually got to the point of having a clear runway to start building it, they immediately realized it was completely insane. Even more insane than they had already thought it was when Walt was pushing it on them as this grand vision that they just didn't understand and needed to trust him on. They couldn't decide how to determine who would live there. There would be tons of people interested in renting in the city, but Disney's plan involved turning it into a homogenous utopia free of crime. How would they vet people and determine who had the potential to commit crimes without it veering into weird, creepy, big brother totalitarian territory, the type of neighbor spying common to communist societies that Walt Disney despised? How were they going to create and maintain actual schools for children? Were they seriously going to design their own education infrastructure, develop the teachers unions, and hold all of the special school board elections? How were they going to police making sure that every single adult had a job? Were they just going to evict people out of their homes once they retired? There were also major ethical issues with the plan. Residents wouldn't have a choice over basically being test subjects for experimental new products. The implication was that people who lived in the city were on display as part of an exhibit for Disney World guests. So there were privacy concerns as well as just general quality of life concerns, with one Disney employee commenting that nobody who lived in Epcot could head over to the corner store in their pajamas to pick up some milk. They'd have to get dressed up to the nines every time they left the house because they were essentially on public display at all times. Also, there were concerns that it'd be too difficult to have 25,000 people living in their homes and constantly having Disney employees going into their houses and replacing appliances as part of the plan for the city. Who would want to have their houses being entered and dismantled that frequently? Another issue was that companies didn't actually want to show off their products in the prototype stage in the way that Walt had envisioned. He thought that the corporations would love to have their products tested in such a real-world setting and would love the publicity of having their futuristic products shown off without having to actually release them to the market. But in reality, these types of companies are very tight-lipped and secretive about their prototype projects. And how would they deal with something like a murder in the city? What if a sponsor withdrew and laid off all of its workers? Would there be mass evictions? There were so many major problems with no solutions, it made literally no actual sense. And this is kind of the twist or like the, the reveal that I kind of alluded to earlier in that like this so far, at least the way I've structured this, we're kind of talking about this as if I kind of I wrote this whole thing like from almost the perspective of Walt Disney of like I'm pitching it to you like it's a real thing that could happen because I really wanted to hammer the point. I want I wanted to hammer home the point here at this point to just basically have the wool, you know, pulled off and sort of bring you back to reality and be like, no, this was an insane, ridiculous idea that made no sense and could never have worked. You say that and I, it didn't work without him, but I genuinely think his cult of personality, it might not have been as extreme 
as he wanted it to be, but I think it would have happened a lot closer. It might have just existed for four years and then been shuttered, but I genuinely think it would have happened in some approximation of what he was pitching had he been alive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you t- could totally be right. And I, I kind of speculate on that a little bit here, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is whether or not he could have pulled it off temporarily or whether or not fucking Disney World would be the state capital of Florida at this point and they'd be flying around in jetpacks or whatever at this like by by now um it really just sh- goes to show like how that cult of personality can like pe- people talk about they see these cult documentaries and they're just like I could never be tricked into doing that or whatever but you really don't know what you can be convinced of until it happens to you. And it's it's really fascinating how these, these people with these, this cult of personality can conduct some sort of mass hypnosis where they can convince this company of people who seemingly are mostly sensible human beings that have been able to build this huge company and, you know, generate millions and billions of dollars over years. And you can convince them all to go down a rabbit hole with you and invest all of their time and energy into like, I want to build a city where people are flying around in jet cars. The people surrounding Walt Disney, despite thinking the plan was a bad idea all along, had just taken for granted that he would somehow wow them in the end. He'd done it at every prior turn. Roy Disney also didn't believe in Disneyland or think it would work. He didn't even believe that they could build a successful business out of animation back in the 1930s. It was a given that this would just be another example of him pushing back on Walt's vision to better temper it, but Walt ultimately pulling it off in the end and shocking all the naysayers. But whether he could have done it, if he had lived long enough or not, one thing was certain. Without Walt Disney around, there was no way Epcot was going to happen. After years of planning, Epcot was scrapped. Instead, the entire project was shifted towards becoming a more modest vacation resort. They'd still build the planned sequel to Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, as well as the monorail and people mover public transit system to bus people around the property. And they'd still develop tons of parks and other attractions throughout the sprawling 27,000 acres, but there'd be no city of tomorrow, no Epcot. They say that a person dies twice, when they die and when they're forgotten. But there's no doubt that Walt Disney would have felt like he had three deaths coming to him. His actual mortal death, the day his legacy would eventually slip from our collective cultural memory, and the day that his vision for Epcot was abandoned. The park opened in 1971. Roy Disney dedicated the opening to his brother, having renamed it from just Disney World to Walt Disney World in his honor. And almost as if it had been the final act of keeping his brother's wild ideas in check, he also passed away three months later. Epcot was dead. Long live Walt Disney World. Years later, in 1982, Disney would open up a new attraction within the resort called Epcot, but it was not the city of tomorrow originally planned, but rather a World's Fair-style stable of pavilions built to show off industrial and technological advancements of the past as well as concepts of industry from the future. It merely served to pay homage to the park's lofty origins rather than actually realize them. One thing that all this wasted pre-planning of an impossible city had accomplished, though, was firmly establishing Disney's governmental powers on the property, which still hold strong to this day. And though Epcot was never realized, Disney would one day reignite their vision to create a utopian city, and they'd use these governmental powers to build a new city that, while was much smaller in scale and vision to Epcot, would have a much more grisly end.
Act 4. The law of irony dictates you probably shouldn't name your new town Celebration. In 1994, Disney carved out land just outside of the Disney World property and incorporated it into their municipality. They developed the land and turned it into Celebration Florida, a small suburban town completely owned and maintained by Disney with a smaller but similar vision to Epcot of creating a tiny insular community with its own government. Set of ordinances free from the issues of modern suburban areas like robberies, drugs, bad schools, and poorly maintained homes bringing down the property value of the entire neighborhood. It was a fully functioning town with schools, churches, businesses, movie theaters, etc. Thousands of people flocked to Celebration to buy up million dollar homes in the Disney-owned town. And just like the previous plan for Disney World, the town had its own police force, water supply, fire department, and governing body. They also banned all franchises and billboards, played music from speakers in the trees on neighborhood streets, and pumped fake snow throughout the town during the winter. Demand was so high that the company asked people to enter a lottery to be in with a chance of snapping up one of the 474 homes. Around 5,000 people entered. The original sales brochure for the town said, There once was a place where neighbors greeted neighbors in a quiet summer twilight, where children chased fireflies, and porch swings provided easy refuge from the cares of the day. The movie house showed cartoons on Saturday, the grocery store delivered, and one teacher that always knew you had that something special. Remember that place? Make America great again. Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> For a while, people loved living in the exciting community that at once harkened back to the non-existent old world nostalgia of the quiet, friendly communities of the 1950s but with all the modern amenities of the 1990s. People weren't allowed to keep their cars parked on the street. All trash was stored in underground bins where it'd be whisked away out of sight by city sanitation workers. All the doors were required to be made out of wood. Lawns were required to be kept at a certain color of green in length. It was meant to create this uniform, consistent level of quality that would overall feel more aesthetically pleasing and cleaner to residents. However, over time, the citizens of Celebration began to grow resentful of these extremely strict rules and also felt like the uniform nature of the neighborhood actually kind of felt sterile and repetitive. Some people actually said that it had reminded them of cookie-cutter government-built prefabricated neighborhoods they lived in under communist regimes in other countries like Russia and Cuba. That along with the little touches that were supposed to feel quaint, like the music that was played in the streets and the shaving cream snow that was rained from the sky during winter evenings, started to feel creepy and surreal to the people who lived in Celebration. And honestly, like this town is like the OG Verhoeven's toupee town. Like this, this is like Verhoeven's toupee, the town. Yeah, I don't want to go to this place. Like all these weird, I mean, it's just, it's just remind, it's like this whole story, the, the thing about Epcot and like what that could have been if it actually had been made and this, it just gives me like serious Bioshock vibes. Like the like Walt Disney was like a wannabe Andrew Ryan, which I'm sure I'm sure Andrew Ryan was probably partially based on Walt Disney as well as Howard. Like he's probably part of the amalgamation that created that character. But like that's what it was It's like. That's that's what this whole thing gives me the vibes of, of just like this weird like guy who's obsessed with control, who builds his own. I mean, isn't there like in Bioshock, isn't there like a cartoon character that's like a little winking guy that's like basically just like a Mickey Mouse mascot? That's Fallout. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's a similar, yes, there's a similar thing in, in, in Bioshock. It was claimed that every house had to have a Mickey Mouse hidden somewhere in the property. Just one rule in the 160-page regulations book that residents were said to have been expected to follow. Only certain plants were reportedly allowed in gardens, and special lanes were built behind homes to hide cars. Residents Ori and Jane Skeisel, a retired couple from Michigan, told the Daily Mail in 2010, If you don't like rules, you don't want to live here. 
The spell started to be broken for these Disney fanatics, and they realized they weren't living in a magical Disney World paradise, but rather in a corporately owned oasis of extremely expensive tract homes in the middle of a swamp. And then the real issue started cropping up. As the years passed, there were also complaints of leaking roofs and other issues with the properties. An inquiry set up to investigate found that at least 70 homes needed new roofs. The school also came under fire with classrooms supposedly rammed with 80 children between three teachers. Many families chose to sell their homes and move away over the quote-unquote serious academic shortcomings. There was a lake in the town that came to be known as Death Pond. Up until 1998, there was no warnings on the road that if you took a wrong turn, you risk driving into the water. There were several incidents that gave the pond its macabre name. The most well-known involved three young men who'd been on vacation in Florida in the summer of 1998 before they mysteriously vanished. Their bodies were discovered nine months later inside a car at the bottom of the lake. So, I mean, we're just getting, this is just the beginning, but Disney built a town and then like three guys just fucking died in it in the, like a horrific way. <laughs> yeah, not even like a, like a cool way where you're like going out in a bank robbery or something. It's just like, oh, they, there's Disney World. Make a right. I mean, left. Ah! Uh, bloop, 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 bloop. That sucks. That fucking sucks. Celebration also apparently developed a reputation for some kind of seedy underbelly of wife-swapping culture. Fuck yes! Malcolm Longley, a property investor who moved to Celebration, said when interviewed in 2010, We call it Celebration Separation. Pretty much all the British people I know who have moved here have come happily married and ended up divorced. It's an incestuous town and there's an element of wife-swapping. You love to see it. You love to see it. People exercising their free will, having good times, doing the exact thing that Walt Disney would not want them to do. In 1998, the town was rocked by an armed home invasion. A couple were bound and gagged in their home by a gang of mass burglars. And then during the 2008 economic recession, tons of homes in celebration were foreclosed upon. The town had majorly lost its sheen as this idyllic vision of the 1950s full of community and became a weird, creepy ghost town with a deadly lake. But shit was about to get much darker. In November of 2010, resident Matteo Giovandito, a local school teacher who lived alone with his chihuahua Lucy, was strangled with a shoelace and bludgeoned to death with an axe. People noticed his absence when he stopped showing up to his class at a nearby elementary school, and police were sent to his home. They discovered his brutally beaten body inside of his house and eventually apprehended David Murillo, who was 30 and homeless at the time, for the killing. He told police that he had bludgeoned the man with an axe after he had attempted to sexually assault him. The news of the killing and the reason he was killed caused a flood of Giovandito's former students to come forward one by one and claim that he had molested them while serving as their teacher. His murder had accidentally blown the lid off of a years-long pattern of pedophilia within the community of celebration. <laughs> Jesus, that took a turn. Yeah, for sure. It's like, oh, like that. it could stop it. Like, oh, shit, there was like a brutal murder. But it's like, no, it's, it goes further. An anonymous mother alleged to the Daily Beast that Mr. Giovandito, who she has described as a quote-unquote cunning pedophile predator, developed a close relationship with her 10-year-old son. She claimed he treated him to trips abroad to countries including Mexico, Japan, and China. Okay, well, one, why are you letting your son go with some dude to Mexico, Japan, and China? Yeah, that's that's what I, that's my thought. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to blame it squarely on the mom or the parents or whatever, because, you know, he's a pedophile and he did this thing. But 
yeah, I, why would you let your 14-year-old son go on a trip overseas with his teacher? That's insane. I would never I would never do that. I would never let my kids go with their teacher alone anywhere in the in the next room. But the boy suddenly cut all ties with Mr. Giovandito at the age of 14, and she alleged she later learned her son's quote-unquote mentor had been sexually abusing him for years. Uh and if you if you go back to the um the 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 message in the brochure the sales brochure for the town it really puts and there was that one teacher who always knew you had that special something into a completely different context Days after Giovandito's death, a man named Craig Fauci, also a celebration resident, barricaded himself into his own home for 14 hours. He began shooting at police officers outside. None were injured, but when they entered the house, they found Fauci dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The former airline pilot was said to have been deeply depressed following his divorce. Well, back-to-back pedophile murder divorce suicide ended up being the final straw for Disney, and they decided that perhaps Walt Disney's grand vision of owning a city might possibly be the worst idea in the history of the world. They quickly sold Celebration Florida to a real estate company that owns it to this day. And though the town has had many problems and is by far not the suburban utopia it was built to be, people still live in Celebration and have generally positive things to say about the community. Perhaps the reason why it had so many issues to begin with is because of film studio slash theme park company just has no business owning a town? Well, you'd need to tell Disney that, because after the sale of Celebration Florida, they immediately started from scratch and built a new privately owned town called Golden Oak that still exists and is owned by Disney today. I wish that we had like just a little tap pad that had like Verhoeven's toupee. Papa Pricey the Context Clown, like all of the just like little bits. So we don't even have to even say them anymore. Like, I, I wish I could just hit a tap pad that said, now that's some Verhoeven toupee bullshit. Like a soundboard at a radio station. We just become like a morning zoo radio station. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 that's some Verhoeven toupee bullshit. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I think it's it's a fascinating topic and it's 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 an interesting synecdoche into the mind of one of the most um important American business people of the past hundred years. Um it's it's fascinating to see this man's idiosyncrasies and foibles writ large. Um and it, it feels uh it feels very Don Quixote esque almost, you know, like this was his his this was his defining uh, tragedy that he would, you know, the, the, a vision so large that even he couldn't manifest it into reality after, in air quotes, winning over and over and over and over again, even after countless setbacks. Um, it's very, very interesting and very, very sad when analyzed on a more discursive level, not just like, did you know Disney built a fucking town? Because it, it really shows you the um, the dark sociopolitical leanings that this guy had and, and the, the kind of regressive and staunchly um, conservative isn't even the right word. It's 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 kind of almost traditionalist, you know, it's not it's not conservative in the political sense that we have, as Americans have come to know it and more conservative in terms of a cultural identity that literally has never and probably will never exist. This kind of 
you know, the, 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 the root emotion that the alt-right slash, um, uh, new wave of would-be Republicans that their base thinks is real. Cause it's not even an imagined past because at this point it is the real past for those people. It just didn't happen to ever truly exist. Yeah. And, and, you know, he had all of those, all of that belief structure and all of those ideas about how things should be and the things that shouldn't be and the, the way things should go back to or change t towards. And it's really interesting how he chose to externalize all that stuff. I mean, you know, in some ways you can you can find it very impressive that he didn't just rant about this shit and like, you know, like uh, talking heads do these days where you just have the fucking pillow guy just like making some shitty three hour documentary where he's just ranting about made up bullshit that he constructed <laughs> in his own cocaine addled mind. Completely. Yeah. And, you know, Walt Disney was like, I'm going to fuck. I mean, and, and like I said, like I said, with Bioshock, it's that thing. Like, he's just like, I'm going to build my own society where nobody's poor and everyone has a job and there's and nobody even knows what a union is. You say union and they're like, oh, is that just a street? Is that the, the street that, that's like the main street of our city that we live in called union? <laughs> Otherwise, I have no frame of reference for what the word union means. Yep. Yep. Union more like, um... Uh, onion. That joke didn't work. I was trying to make <laughs> union into a uh uh noise, but it didn't. It didn't work. <laughs> More like you needn't band <laughs> together with your brethren and force us to pay you better. Union. More like union. But yeah, and like the, the just the the way that 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 form of obsession that he had, where it was like it's not like obsession with toiling away at craft or something like it's it's obsession with like controlling every aspect of his existence. Um, it's almost like a it's a, it's almost like a just an extreme reaction to feeling like he had no control over anything, and so he therefore needed to control everything that he could possibly uh, pay to control. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price, and I'm Papa Pricey. <laughs> uh, this has been Deep Cuts. You can find my works on the internet at heydavebaker.com, uh, Action Hospital, Fuck Off Squad, Star Trek Seven's Reckoning, which has now finally concluded. The fourth issue is out, and there's a bunch of signed copies of all four issues uh, up on the site. If you're interested in reading... Some Star Trek comics written by me that also happen to be signed by me. Um, Andrew, if I were to ask you to conduct a feasibility report on where people could find you on the internet, what would you say? Well, at the conclusion of my feasibility report, I have determined that you can find me in my futuristic city of tomorrow that I've built from the ground up with every aspect designed to create a perfect utopian society free of the pores and the olds and every park will have its own corresponding golf and we will all live in harmony but we will not be so harmonious that we you know in some way band together and form a kind of supportive group where we all share the salaries that we're making and then work with a outside mitigating force to help advocate for 
a, a more collective, better universal salary amongst all of us, better working conditions for that salary, and um, just a better all overall work, uh, better overall quality of life in our careers. Uh, and you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. And you can also get Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency membership patches at my website or Dave's website or the official merch store at deepcutspod.com. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, Anywhere you get your podcasts and the dead boy detectives who I I mean, I'm just going off of what I saw in the movie, in the documentary, my life as a mustache, colon, the Walt Disney story. Yeah, I mean, they they dedicated uh, just an inordinate amount of screen real estate in that uh, Saving Mr. Banks movie about Mary Poppins to just Walt Disney's fake mustache and like Emma um, Emma Thompson just having to pretend like it's re- there and it inspired the entire uh, it, it inspired Dick Van Dyke's entire character which is funny because Emma Thompson was originally cast as Walt Disney's mustache which is so interesting yeah well she went in to audition for it and they're like actually you know what we actually kind of think you might work better for this role yeah because she was she was gonna play Walt Disney's mustache in the Tom Hanks uh disney biopic which i don't remember the name of now um i feel like it was called the mustache's destiny or something i don't remember yeah it 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 really it it reframed the legacy of walt disney and really brought it more into sharp focus that ultimately it wasn't about it wasn't about the animation it wasn't about the, the 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 parks it wasn't about disney world it wasn't about his vision um, it wasn't even about, you know, the credit that he was stealing from animators. It was just it was about his mustache. Yeah, it just all linked back to his mustache. And in fact, there's a director's cut of that movie um, where there it's actually R rated where they showed like a, there's a final scene that's a, it's almost kind of uh, Boogie Nights esque where you see um, Walt getting ready to give a, a ABC Mouseketeers uh, lead in intro, but where he was going to do it naked because he had shaved his pubic follicles into the exact same shape as his mustache. And it was going to be, he, he was, he, he was going to, he was going to give uh, a helicopter goodbye at the end, which I feel like I don't even necessarily need to s- state what that is. Um, and then his final sign off, his new catchphrase was going to be, um, give these mustaches a twirl. Yeah. And then the, you know, the, the intros, <laughs> the intro song to the, to that original version of the Mickey Mouse Club, which was actually the Mickey Mustache Club. And it was, <laughs> yeah. it was him. He'd come out, <laughs> he'd come out naked with, you know, the mustache and then his, his pubic hair shaved in an identical format. And he would, <laughs> he would just walk out and go, uh, gather around now, children and just see my mastery. 
M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E. Mustache. <laughs> mustache. Mustache. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mustache. Must. Say it. Everyone, say it. Say mustache. Why Why is no one... Is the, is, is the is like the sign broken or something? Fucking, fucking say it. Fucking say it. Say fucking mustache. What the fuck is going on? The camera pans around and it's just Roy Disney in the audience, completely naked with his pubic hair also shaved in a, in a, in a mustache shape going, Mustache! Mustache, Walt! Mustache! Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how how history gets sanitized like that. Yeah, how how it's just completely rewritten, almost like history has been shaved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you gonna point out the fact that in the time that we've been talking, I've grown a tiny Walt Disney mustache? Yes. Oh, I know what I was gonna say. Also, in that in that uh, hypothetical scenario you created, of course, you were referring to. Um, legendary illustrator Tony Baloney, who was uh, started out as an animator at Disney in the early days, but then he got fed up with the anti-union practices he left and created uh, Chuchi Wuchi. Yes. Yeah. Tony Baloney, which is interesting because his his name, much like Jack Kirby and Bob Kane, is a pseudonym. Um, You know, Jack Kirby is uh, Jacob uh, Kurtzberg and uh, Bob Kane is Robert Kahn. And Tony Baloney was actually Tony Bologna, ironically enough. It's weird. It's weird how he just got tired of people mispronouncing it. It wasn't even really like a xenophobic thing. He was just like, yeah, I know it's pronounced. I know. I know. He didn't even change the spelling. He just legally changed the pronunciation, the phonetics of it. Yeah, he just some somebody like referred to him at, as that one day and he just like uh, accepted it. And from that point on, he just became Tony Baloney. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the early Baloney Chuchi Wuchi uh, episodes uh, and and comics. They're, they're really um, they're really something else, man. Um, yeah. Big, big inspiration for me. Big inspiration for my fashion sense, for my desire to portray bacon on bacon and legs and bacon and legs miami nights our short-lived disney channel tv show that's something that we haven't really gotten into is the fact that you and i are ex-disney employees yeah i mean yeah i i shied away from it because i feel like it creates a bit of a of a um of a conflict of interest i mean i think it's fairly apparent from my comments so far about how what a xenophobic anti-union piece of shit non-talented uh, businessman hack uh, Walt Disney was that I have no fond feelings for for our our lapsed former employer. But if they want to do a reboot of Bacon and Legs, they got my number. I, I think a lot of your resentment comes from the fact that when we were working at Disney, uh, because you know, of course, the resurrected he- head of Walt Disney on a giant robot spider body was, you know, it, people don't know this, but he is the actual, you know, president of Disney. That that once you start working there, you you're introduced to him, and he he singled you out, and you know, I I, I can't I can't I can't begin to imagine the uh, the 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 harassment that you experienced during that time because you know for whatever reason i just didn't he, i didn't he didn't come after me yeah there was one time when we were in the elevator together um and uh his rusted spider legs um one of them brushed against my shoulder and he was like ew and i was like you you you're the one with spider legs and he was like you're so dirty ew human bodies no and then he skittered out yeah, well, he did that. He did that. He said all that stuff. And then he turned to me and he was like, have a good morning, Andrew. And then he just walked out of the elevator. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I don't miss those days. I think it was because my name is Andrew Price and he was like, I remember I remember Papa Pricey. He helped me build my empire. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're related to him or not, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I just like people named Price. Yeah. Look, I'm Andrew. Do you think as the resident price on this podcast, do we need to take a feasibility study about if there's too many inside jokes in this podcast? I, I mean, there's several feasibility studies that we can conduct on this podcast. And I think I think it's time to drain the swamp and conduct several feasibility studies. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a feasibility study about whether or not we should get a new roommate. You know, Hillsmer's kind of a piece of shit. Oh, Hillsmer's a walking feasibility study. Yeah. Um, I think we sh- we could probably have a feasibility study on uh, if we spent too much money re uh, re reconstructing the, the the wall the far wall that I'm currently sitting next to in the mystery treehouse from when Charles Wexler Weller plowed a massive uh, spaceship into the side of it. I think there's also a a feasibility study that could be conducted on whether or not. Um, I'm too excited about uh, conducting feasibility studies. Like, I'm just going to go out on a limb and be honest about that. It's it's a possibility. It is a possibility. I mean, yeah, you've you've despite your resentment towards his general existence, you share the obsession of feasibility studies with Walt Disney. But the good thing about that is that you got a Papa Pricey right right nearby. <laughs> The repair on the wall was granted very expensive, but the reason for that is because we built the mystery treehouse in the burnt out husk of the headquarters of our of our personal hero slash uh, legacy comic book character slash actual real life boy detective Chuchi Wuchi. This was his secret headquarters that he had back in the 20s and we used our Disney Channel fortune to buy it and convert it into the Mystery Treehouse. But, you know, at the time we didn't have enough money, so we kind of just like built on top of it. But whenever the hole was blown in the side of the Mystery Treehouse by Charles Rexler Weller, whenever we went to go repair it, we basically discovered that the whole this entire building was lead lined is the the walls were filled with lead. So we could we we couldn't just repair the wall. We had to strip the lead out of the entire building and replace it all, which is why the the money, which is why the 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 cost ballooned so high. But it was necessary. I mean, it, it explains so much about the last couple of years. There's the the weird random like uh, temper tantrums we throw sometimes and just sometimes whenever I wake up in the middle of the night and you're just standing over me breathing heavily, it's just, you know, it's all, it's just that lead is fucking with our, with our brains. That period where I decided to grow out a mullet. Yeah, that was definitely lead fueled. And you, and you were, you drew, you grew the mullet and you just started listening to Led Zeppelin, but you were like, you kept specifically saying you kept like, you would be blasting it and it'd be like, got a lot of love. And you'd, I'd walk into the room and you'd be like, I'm listening to Led Zeppelin, spelled L-E-A-D, not L-E-D. And you said that every time I walked in the room. And I now now I get it. I, I, I did not understand whatever the bit was, but I get it now. None of that's going in. None of that's staying in. You're going to cut all that out. <laughs>